0: Hey everybody, welcome to Tailgating with Geniuses, lawn chair conversations with really smart people from the world of business, with lots of cool stories and side rails thrown in for our mutual fun. I am Ken Schmidt, and one of your tolerable hosts, I'm a speaker, consultant, author, and co-founder of Torque Sessions, leadership training and seminars that teach businesses how to dominate their competitors, and I'm joined as always by Mr. Martin Flaherty, my fellow co-founder in Torque Sessions and also president of Pencil Box Inc. out of Atlanta, Georgia. Martin, say hi to our loyal listeners.
1: Hello, everybody. And hello, Ken. How are you today?
0: I am just fine. Thank you. Hey, you know what? If you're watching on video today, instead of listening through your earbuds at the gym, you're noticing that somebody's missing today. Laycon, our third tolerable host and by far the brightest and most talented of the three of us just literally minutes before going on got called out for a work emergency can't be here there are some things you can't say no to but martin and i because we are dedicated storytellers and believers in our tailgating with genius listeners are going to forge ahead without him although we're going to miss him horribly
1: yeah as always always lacon always makes things more interesting and brings perspective but I don't know how we would do. Ken, we've got got an interview coming up with just a fascinating character that you and I had met. And we're going to be talking about the world of spirits. We're going to be particularly talking about gin. So this is a perfect time. Summer is getting started. A great summer drink. And we're going to be talking about gin.
0: Who doesn't like a gin and tonic on a hot summer day or a dry martini shaken and not stirred the way Flaherty and his friends in the underworld enjoy them? (laughs) Uh, he's, but you're going to love Antonio Cuco, our guest, because he is a profound storyteller. And storytelling is something that has become, uh, interestingly enough, kind of a subject du jour in the halls of corporate America and something that Martin and I get asked about constantly when we're out meeting with clients doing torque sessions. It's, you know, what's all this buzz about authenticity? What's all this buzz about connecting with our market and our customers through stories? We don't have a story because we're boring. You know, we just build a boring product or a boring service. And that's kind of music to our ears here because we know any business can and should be developing and sharing stories with its customers because it's one of the greatest differentiators a business can have.
1: Yeah, Ken, if, 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 so when we do these sessions, um, there, there's a segment where I always uh, ask people, to raise their hands and say that, um, who here is a storyteller and it's amazing. Uh, one of the last sessions we did, we had about 40 people in a room and only about 10 people raised their hands. Yeah. And I was, I, and my immediate response, so I'm giving her away is I basically call everybody who didn't raise their hand a liar because, um, basically we all tell stories and literally it boils down to this. I'm going to make it in the most simple form. When you go home at night or over the weekend, or you're having drinks with a friend and the question becomes, oh, hey, what happened at work today? Or what did you do today? You ask that to your kid. Well, basically, you always get a three-part arc. Well, you wouldn't believe like Donna in accounting. Donna walked in with yogurt into the meeting. and It's like, oh, my God, you've told me about Donna. So now we have the setup, right? And we have like you're in a meeting and the monster is coming and the monster is Donna. Sorry, Donna. But at the monster is like, oh, my God, well, you're not supposed to have food in the conference room. You've told me about that. Like, yeah. And so like, well, what did anyone do? And it's like, well, I wasn't having any of it. So I said, Donna. And it's was like, OK, now we have the hero now. All right. Now we have the hero standing up to the monster and said, you can't bring, you know, yogurt into the conference room. And Donna's like, ah, so now you have tension. And then the resolution is Donna says, OK, sorry about that. Puts it back in their fridge and she stole it from somebody anyway. And you have the resolution, the happily ever after. It's like we all tell stories and corporations do as well and the products that they sell are all telling more than just a feature and benefit story if it's done right
0: it better be more than a feature feature benefit story and see we have the well the benefit martin and i of coming from businesses corporate backgrounds where storytelling uh wasn't so much a corporate directive it was kind of woven into the fabric of the businesses and, and a huge reason the businesses are successful I mean, at at Harley Davidson, storytelling uh, is so ingrained in the system uh, that it's almost impossible to miss it. Employees pick up on it very, very quickly. Dealers, customers around the world, there's a 120 year backlog of great, human, dramatic, memorable, meaningful stories. And And in fact, just to give you a An example of how important storytelling is that Harley-Davidson actually publishes books of stories called lore that that customers can read and enjoy, but they're really designed for employees and dealers and their employees that read, like learn these stories, share these stories with, with our customers. It's what makes us real human and authentic.
1: And Ken, you know, you and I both ride. um, I don't ride uh, a Harley. Uh, I have a Kawasaki and, um, What's funny about just that world of motorcycles, there are very few brands, if almost no brands, who have a definitive position that really hits the soul of an individual, that evokes spirit, that evokes a sense of connection. And hardly, you know, they're fans, there are a lot of deriders of the brand out there, of the, of the product itself, but no one, no one, no one can fight the story. There is no in that category, that motorcycle and motorcycles are two wheels, an engine and a various level of technology on it. And hopefully you keep them upright and going in one direction. But it's not about that. It's story that 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 evokes that image and creates that connection to the brand.
0: And I'm I'm glad you said that, because most of the time when we're talking with, you know, executive leaders of big businesses that we all do business with, and if we ask them, like, you know, what, what's the story? What would you want us to remember about your business? They will always lapse into something that is very, very specific to their product or what the business does. Our focus on quality and excellence and our commitment to our customers is what makes us different. And I always take a step back and I say, think of any time you've ever told a story about a business, a, a small mom and pop, uh, you know, a hundred thousand person conglomerate. Nobody ever talks in specifics about what a business does. You know, here's how they bring in raw materials and cast them into alloys, which are then used to produce metal, which allows them to, you know, form and shape and engineer that into motorcycles. No, see, when people tell stories, we don't talk about what a business does. We talk about who the business is. We, we, we tend to humanize the business because, you know, we're people and we humanize everything so think of any story you've ever heard always contains the, you know, the three elements, people, something that happened, and how we reacted to that story. That was really cool. You know, we attach emotion to that. That's not hard to do, and any business can do it.
1: No, it's not. And uh, just a quick example, I've was uh, been working uh, with a startup that's too uh, seasoned. Um partners at a consulting firm in the world of supply chain. Well, you can't swing a dead cat in the world of manufacturing warehousing to not find supply chain consultants They're They're everywhere. Sorry for those big fans of um, not not swinging dead cats. Sorry for the uh, for the colloquialism there. But it turns out that these guys are, are, are living in a world that everyone uses relatively the same model and everyone puts pictures of gantry cranes and shipping, you know, huge shipping containers and all of pictures of warehouses, which I'm sorry, guys who build warehouses. Those are not the sexiest pictures you can ever imagine, but that's what they all do. That's the language of the industry. Mm -hmm. And these guys were coming into this thing and they were saying, well, we're going to do relatively the same work. And I kept on scratching the surface and I was like, well, why are you doing this? And they said, well, we've spent 30 years doing all of this work. We know how all of this process is done. And we also know that things have changed so radically that we can't do them the same way. We have to rethink the entire process. And I said, well, like, do you have floating shells or some sort of magical thing? And they're like, no, it's all the same stuff. And what we got to really quickly is their whole approach was to to ask the question is like, is this really the correct way to go forward? Does this model work anymore? So they took this idea of reconsideration, and now they're the only company saying this is supply chain reconsidered. So if you're an owner, a buyer of a product, these are guys telling you that, hey, we're going to just simply start with a series of questions to understand, does the models necessarily work? And as a buyer, Do you really wanna buy some old system that everyone else is using? Or do you wanna make sure that you're using something that's new and well thought out? So even a small instance like that, they're creating a whole story on this idea of reconsideration, which is working.
0: And businesses need to recognize that if they don't make developing stories and storytelling kind of part of their, their DNA, it's not going to happen. It won't happen organically if the people running businesses don't start getting their people focused on what do we want people to know and remember about us? What's the human element here? No business started out of thin air. Every business has stories that involve humans and human decisions and emotion. I mean, if you're sitting next to somebody on a plane and you've founded a business, or you're running a business, or they ask you about the business, you immediately lapse into telling a story about it so that the person that's listening can relate to it. That's not hard to do, but it's kind of got lost in this, uh, you know, increasingly digital world where we always feel like we need to say what we do as quickly as possible and how well we do it. Uh, And uh, that's not what's remembered. We don't remember businesses for what they do. We remember them for who they are mark to t- tell that the new coke story I, I love that
1: well real quickly one of the everybody who studied marketing or brands knows that in the 80s coca-cola was in a race in a fight with pepsi and they they came upon an idea just to go ahead and reformulate the product and launched new coke if you don't know new the story coke. go watch a youtube video on it there are hundreds go to wikipedia it's just it's a great story that the biggest baddest Uh, B2C brand in the world stumbles and stumbled huge. Turns out New Coke was a failure. And one of the things that happened is the number two in the organization, a guy named Don Kehoe, was getting phone calls every single day. The press, the story was just, it was a disaster for the company. And he kept on getting a phone call from one particular person, a woman whose name I don't remember, but uh, uh, Mr. Kehoe's assistant would always be taking this phone call and would tell him every single day this person is calling. And it was going on for better than a week. Finally, he said, put her through. I'll talk to her. And basically what happened as he told the story is she laid into him about the mistake it was for launching new Coke and getting rid of old Coke. And he was listening to what he had been hearing repeatedly over and over again, people saying bad idea, bad idea, bad idea. And he said, well, have you tried it? And the conversation stopped. And the lady on the phone said, no, I don't drink Coke. And he said, well, why are you going on about how new Coke isn't like old Coke? You don't even drink Coke. And she said, you've taken away my childhood. And he stopped. And he said, she said, Coke was always in my house. It's what my dad drank. It's what my mom drank. It's what my brothers drank. He said, I remember growing up that at family gatherings, we always had Coke there. We always had it. It was part of my life. And I associate Coke with all of these memories of my family. And it was one of those moments where the realization of who really owns the brand, does the company own the brand or is the brand owned by the people out there? And it's just a lovely little story about a realization that, product can become a story that we tell ourselves and we share with others we all have stories about how much we love a particular product that we buy but we connect to it on a totally different way and that's what i love about that coke story and that's by the way, what i what i love about anthony's story right because anthony is not the, our, our guest is not a global brand our guest is not a big fortune 100 firm He's think, think, think about that for, with for
0: just for just a second who in their right mind? I mean, what business is more fiercely competitive, more fiercely entrenched in its market spaces than alcohol spirits? Right. I mean, the, the brands are huge; they're very, very well capitalized. They are they're controlled in their distribution. So, imagine trying to introduce a new gin brand, a very popular category in a very massive market against household against the tank arrays of the world the Bombay's of the world, the beef eaters of the world. But to do that as a small business and then have it explode and take off based on essentially well, not just having a great product because that's obvious, but the stories and the lore behind it uh, that have made it what it is.
1: And and Ken, ever since we met Antonio, I've been doing work in Portugal, totally in a different location. And folks, um, if you're in the Northeast, you can get uh, the U.S. You can get Sherish uh, Gin, his company. Uh, pardon me, his his brand. Um, but I was back in Portugal, and I sat there, and I was drinking. Uh, a Sherish gin and tonic and i was telling the story to other portuguese people that i work with and they were just simply amazed so on that note let's 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 join our conversation and in interview with antonio cuco of Sherish gin so our guest today is the one and only antonio cuco antonio is the founder of sharish gin which is a portuguese brand that ken and i ran into two years ago when we were doing one of our talk sessions over there and we spent a couple days in the company of a number of different people and one of the people really popped out because when we do our work on brand positioning language differentiation all of these aspects antonio was one of the embodiments of all of those things pick a marketing book pick a brand book. And basically now you can just take this man's face and stick it into pretty much any chapter on how you go ahead and build a company from nothing. And Antonio, I'm going to let you speak in a second, but let me just sort of tee this up. If I remember correctly, 10 plus years ago, you were an unemployed teacher in a small sort of rural remote area in Southern Portugal with a love of gin, wondering what you were going to do because there was no more work. And you started a gin company. Is that correct?
2: By accident, because I, I never had the idea to, to, to create a gin, a gin company. It, it was, a, was something that a group of friends of mine challenged me to do at my parents' restaurant. So that's um, once I started making gin for them, uh, and the idea came to to transform it in, into a business. So.
1: so, so if if you were well, first of all, I'm really grateful they didn't challenge you to like run naked through the streets of Lisbon or something like that. It could it have been a rest We did I'm that. For we did. It. <laughs> <laughs> so, so tell me this though. You know, it, it, it's it's a lot of people have ideas about starting a business. But then of course you start diving into it and you chose one that actually involves chemistry, mechanics, needing of a physical space just to simply create the product as well as all the elements. And then you've got to create the distribution as well. Walk us through the process. Like, so how did you get a still, how did you begin this whole, whole adventure?
2: So the still was the, the toughest thing because I started uh, at my parents' restaurant by a a challenge of friends that wanted to have a new gin, and I didn't own a still. Neither none of my friends or my family. So I and I had no money to buy one because it was too expensive, and I had to transform my wife's pressure cook into a still. So that's how I started making gin. So it's. It's funny, and uh, was this this distillation setup that get me got me into making gin and and making gin for my friends to try. Then my friends gave it to other friends and and brought people at my parents' restaurant to try the gin. And at some point, I was selling more gin, the one that I made, than of the 50 brands that we had at the restaurant. So that's when I had the idea to to transform this into a business. And that's when everything started up.
0: This is a category that has very, very famous names in it and that have been around since day one. Your, your tank arrays, your beef eaters, your Bombay Sapphires, the stuff you see in every bar you've ever been in in your life. What the heck would make you think we need another? I need to go up against these guys. And, and what was your plan to actually do that and pull it off?
2: No, my plan was to have a, a small local brand, but uh, the way that we did it, um, it got to uh, to be a national brand in Portugal. So now we are the biggest Portuguese gin company. And it's funny to to, to challenge big companies, uh, multinationals and, and doing stuff uh, in their market. So it's like um, a guerrilla marketing. We are smaller, faster, more accurate. And we, we tend to choose better our goals and aims because we don't have the amount of money that they have.
0: I've been in my lifetime in a lot of well, bars, social settings. I've never met anyone in leadership or any other position at any of the big distilleries or even any of the big distributors. But we met you. So we, we meet you at events. So now we're meeting not just the founder and the master distiller, but now we we know the face behind the business. We've had a conversation with you, not just about the gin, but personal stuff. How important is that to you?
2: It's our biggest advantage. Uh, because uh, even in Portugal, before us, there was no face behind brand, especially in spirits. You had it in mind because you have the... the, the, the the analog that is like a, a, an artist that creates a, a wine, but in spirits, you didn't have it. So we had spirits brands, but no one knew the face behind the brand. So we were the first to do it. And this is good because today, uh, if we were talking 30 years ago, it was not easy to, to put a face behind a label or behind a brand because um, you can only get yourself to be known with traditional media, TV, um, newspapers, magazines, uh, radio has no images. So had no, video. now it has, but it didn't have images back then. So it was really hard. So we came just in the boom, uh, of social media. So we came, so Facebook was really, really young, uh, Instagram, the same, uh, even younger and we. We used all those tools to get ourselves, ourselves known Uh, also because they were affordable, we we didn't have to pay back then. I I think when I started, you could even make ads in Facebook. So it was really just by engagement and and having stuff that people would like. And also in 2010, 2013, 2014, it was one of the biggest crises in Portugal. And like I got unemployed, it happened with thousands of people in Portugal. And I was like a, an inspiration of what you can do being unemployed and was a little bit of empowerment. I In the first years, I made more than 20 or 30 motivational speeches for unemployed, for companies to empower people to create their own business and to succeed.
1: What's interesting, you're a teacher on one track. You're unemployed. Your friends are sitting around, you guys like gin, you're drinking it. So you create a product. But what's it's a great story so far, but there are details and elements in what you're doing that I think is almost like a masterclass on how you go about this. So, if for those of us who are actually watching the video, for if you're listening to just the podcast, the sharish bottle is actually completely different in, in in the form factor than any traditional liquor bottle you're used to seeing and so you you specifically chose packaging you specifically chose the the outline your logo is the outline um, of uh, I think you, the hill village. or the 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 top village. part of your village, and you 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 bring this extremely local aspect that connects people to this one very specific part of Portugal. But then your packaging, you keep that uniqueness going in it. You you that bottle is got to be more expensive than your standard everyday bottle the packaging labels you're choosing have got to be more expensive talk about those decisions and how that was a problem financially maybe and then what it's done for you from a positioning Um, i chose this bottle because i love it Uh,
2: first of all then it's similar to the shape of the hill of Montserrat. so if you have it here you see that it's, it's wide and, 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 and with a big neck, just like Mosserad. And it's narrow, just like the heel of Mosserad. So um, I chose it because of that. The price is like twice to three times more expensive than a similar regular bottle. Um, wow. Then it, it cannot be mechanized. It has to be all handmade uh, and bottled. And uh, the cork is put by hand these stickers all by hand so it's very hand uh, hand labored uh, product the the toughest thing that you have when you you are selling something that people need to try need to, to drink or to eat the first problem that you have is you can have the better best product in the world but if people are not going to try it how can you take people to try it and it's not easy especially when you are not in big supermarkets, you are not a multinational, that you can sponsor a huge event uh, anywhere where people have to drink it. So um, my goal was to for people wanting to have this bottle as a souvenir or as a collectible. And eventually they would drink it. And like I knew that I had a good product that people would like it, I I knew that they would buy it after. So this is like um, the the... the Great, amazing packaging is very important when you want to, to have people to try your stuff. But don't uh, fool yourself thinking that just by having a great package, you'll be having uh, sales. So you need to have more. You need to have uh, engagement. You need to have people to love your story, to love your brand, to love your product, to love the positioning, to love what you do, to, to be able to buy this. So merchandising from you. So this is, is, this is the goal for, for me as a, as a, as a company and as a product. Also yep. authenticity is very important. Knowing the person that is behind doing their story, doing where they came from, what they do, why they do it. So that's, that's the authenticity more than ever is very important because you are just a click away to uh, figure out everything about someone. People today, when they go to a brand and they look at it and they see, okay, this is a brand. Who is the owner? It has no owner. It has investors. It has shareholders. Well, where is the persons? Where are the persons? What do they do? How do they do it? It's only by machine. No, here you come and visit the distillery and see me and you see Tiago that is doing the tour guys. Or you see Sofia. Or you see Flip. Or you see uh,
1: Ricardo. You see people working, and you can see their faces. Antonio, what I, what I, so, so it's look meeting you and talking to you is a joy. I, I mean that you're right. We, we only saw you very briefly, and what was interesting about that evening event, there were two things taking place. You were on one table, and you were given the opportunity to provide a demonstration. And on the other side of the area was a local barbecue uh, wine producer, oh, and the wine producer yeah. did the same thing. And as Ken and I, like w- all three of us on this uh, conversation, we all understand the fundamentals of storytelling, but you were the one doing it. We sat there and it was just, it was absolutely night and day. You, not just how you stand, what you were doing, what you but the way you spoke, the way you presented, but the story you told was amazing. Now you, unlike here, went into aspects of the gin. You started talking about the product and everything. And the most important thing of all, you let everyone taste it, but only after the story. And it was really well done, but you can't be everywhere. So I'm taking you out of the occasion. And to tell you that since we met, I've been working in your country and uh, for, for at least five times being over there and inevitably with my client, I'm in a bar or I'm in a restaurant and I look over and you're not there. But when I look at the bar to get a drink, you're there. Because when I look at the rack of drinks that are there, one bottle is standing out out of all of them and telling me a story that says, I am different. And that little bottle is actually quite big. It occupies a lot of space and because of its proportion, it looks completely different. You're, you're visually connecting with people in a completely unexpected way as well. So congratulations on that. But you. did you get pushback? I mean, it's it's a weird little bottle. We all can pick up a bottle and, and pour it. You've got something and, different. Did that, that cause problems?
2: At the beginning, everybody, uh, especially the, the connoisseurs in the trade in Portugal, they were saying that my bottle was too heavy because it's... Usually, a bottle of uh, seven centiliters weighs 450 grams, and ours weighed uh, 850. Empty. Wow! So it was really heavy. Um, so it was really big, and they say, "Okay, so we'll, for you to put your bottle in the in the in the in the shelf, you'll need to get two out of it." So when the the gin got into the market and people started liking it. They, they were saying, okay, so the bottle is really nice because you always get two competitors out. Then uh, they were saying that people would get to the bar and would say, save me the bottle because I want to take it home when it's empty. So this is perpetuation of the brand. So you can you can, you can still have this bottle being used at home as a jar, as a water bottle to, to take to the table, as um as a um, piggy bank because people use it as piggy bank also as a watch in in, in, in I, I've seen it uh, being made as a watch in a, in a in a wall so <laughs> you, you you had uh, said once in the
0: story and Martin and I have kicked this back and forth for years because we just found it so profound and delightful you said Antonio that you uh, despite the fact that you live in Portugal, are living the American dream. Yeah. What do you mean by that?
2: In Portugal, it's very hard to have success starting from zero because the market is small. We are ten millions, So it's not easy to to succeed in a, such a small market. And we did it. But the American dream is, uh, and also the Brazilian dream, that is very similar to, to, to America in terms of, in size and uh, um, amount of consumers and size of the market. Um, the American dream is that you can get there and uh, and you can succeed and you can make a huge, huge business being an entrepreneur, being an immigrant, starting from scratch. In Portugal, that's really, really hard to, do, to get. So... So that's why I say that I live the American dream. I, I have my house, my company, I have employees, I have um, I have diversion, I again, again, can get to travel, what I like to do the most, and I have I, I do UTV racing, that it's something that the Americans also love. I do off-road racing with, with UTV, so um, something that I always wanted to do, but I thought that I would never have the money to do it, and now I can do it. So this is, this is uh, the American dream
1: in Portugal. Uh, the good news and bad news is is everyone over here is talking about Portugal, and a lot of them are going. I have clients who are heading over there in the fall. If you're going to Lisbon, head for what is it, 40, 50 kilometers uh, to the east of, of Lisbon, and you'll get to your town, correct?
2: Uh, a more, more. 150. We, but, are just, we are just near the border with Spain. so.
1: But there you'll be able to sit with you, taste your gin at the distillery. Folks, go to the website. It shares, here,
2: uh, let, Martin, let me say one thing. Lisbon is an European city. Oporto yeah. is an European city. Alentejo is the real thing. Here, the times last longer. So one hour here has 75 minutes minimum because you don't lose time you don't have traffic jams you don't have queues you don't have anything like that so here people live more so the the three or four hours a day that you have free here working the same hours you have five or six so you are earning one hour every day so this, this is perfect
0: so so wait so when my doctor tells me i have two weeks to live i should go over there that way it'll <laughs> because <see> we'll <we're> <laughs> go one week <doing laughs> now. That. that's perfect
1: all right. On that note, no, let's hope you, Ken...
2: get, you get cured and your doc, you prove your doctor that is wrong.
1: And Antonio, exactly. somehow I imagine the cure for, for whatever is going to make Ken sick is going to involve Sharish at some particular point. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, Antonio, I cannot thank you enough. We've really enjoyed this. It's been great having you here. Um, everyone, if you're heading to Portugal, um, absolutely 100%. If nothing else, yes, enjoy the wine. Yes, enjoy. They've got great beer there as well. The food's wonderful. But when you're having a cocktail, 100%, pause. Do not order what you normally order. Get a Sharish gin. You'll see the bottle on the shelf. It doesn't look like anything else. And it tastes fantastic. And that's coming from me, who is not a gin drinker. Literally, awesome, I changed my awful. mind because of this gin.
2: If you come to Portugal and you travel in top Portuguese company... Top Air Portugal.
1: If you drink a gin on board, it will be charged. There you go. You can start the experience (laughs) experience in the air. Antonio, thanks a lot, man. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Bye. Bye. All the best. All the best. Keep it going. All the best for you, too. You
0: know what I loved about our talk with Antonio Martin was that he doesn't come across as a super successful CEO type about the numbers, about the graphs, about the data. He comes across as a human being that he'd like to sit next to on a long, on a long bus trip. He's animated. He tells good stories, but he's doing this intentionally. He knows what he's doing. He knows that the story he told is the kind of story that you were telling when you were sitting in bars in Portugal, you were spreading his story for him. And I mean, what greater result of telling stories than having them catch on and become fire in the markets that you serve. So uh, Antonio, I, I I tip my hat to you. Love your love your product. Love your story even better. And folks, if you don't know how to incorporate storytelling into your business, there's lots of ways to do that, at uh, least of all hiring Martin and I to come in and lead a, a talk sessions to, to show you how to do that. But. If nothing else, start talking about it internally with your coworkers. What do we want people to know about us? What are some interesting, colorful stories that are going to have some emotional impact that people will remember? Hey, Martin. Uh, well, on that note, what's got your attention?
1: Um, Ken, two things have got my attention. Um, this week, uh, I, there's an article that was just in, uh, the New York times, uh, which is why do we listen to sad songs? And, um, this is something that's been, um, funny for me because I love, I'm a, like you, I'm a big music head, but there are times when I'm listening to things. My wife is like, that is depressing why are you listening to this incredibly dark thing and you know i I can sit there and say oh you know just it's, it's the irish in me or whatever just some sort of cheap melancholy excuse but there has been an extensive study in this article from may 19th in the new york times uh with that title goes into all these different professors and people talking about the psychology of sad songs and basically how we as humans don't like being sad, but we do like art that makes us feel that way. There's a connection. And it's a really, really fascinating study that talks about how our response to art and music potentially is multidimensional. We look at it as a fixed thing, but then it also evokes these certain sort of feelings. And so these these professors are going into all of this detail about hormonal release and all of this. And then I love that at the last part of the article, they had asked a question um, uh, and I'll read it says one by one, the researchers acknowledge the complexity of their subject and the implications of existing works. And then Dr. Addie Picker offered a less philosophical argument for their results. It just feels right. He it said. does feel right. so. So um, my thanks and hats off to uh, artist Julian Baker. You probably know her uh, more recently of boy genius. Um, she's a performer with some of the best, saddest music and julian baker was my soundtrack through the pandemic and it made me so happy and it's uh it's it's not the most uplifting disco pop beat that you could imagine but man i i love a sad song i love a sad song we
0: all love sad song and do you know what's sad what's that do you know what's sad? for the first time in a century We won't be seeing the Oscar Mayer Wienermobile anymore.
1: Wait, I chased one of those. What do you mean?
0: You might have chased the Wienermobile, but the uh, brilliant folks at Oscar Mayer Kraft Heinz have decided that the Wienermobile name has to go. So they've changed the name. To? They've changed it. Now, Now, check out this PR 101 quote about this. I love this. Let's see how many marketing buzzwords we can jam into our quote. And I and I quote now the associate brand manager, I won't name her, quote, the Wienermobile is a beloved American icon that has been sparking smiles and driving cravability for our iconic delicious wieners for nearly 100 years. But this summer, it's time to highlight another fan favorite, our delicious 100% Beef Franks. So now, instead of being called the Wienermobile, the car is being uh, called the Frankmobile. No, it's not. Now, I have to wonder, sir, do you think this is a product thing or do you think is it some kind of, I don't know, motive about the word wiener that has people worked up and upset? I mean, the, the mobile has <laughs> been part of our culture For 100 years, everybody has a Wienermobile story, and I've got some bad news for folks is no matter what you call that thing, when it's going down the road, people are going to see that and think Wienermobile.
1: Wienermobile. The
0: drivers, the drivers are now called Frankfurters. Oh my God. Which, okay, I'll (laughs) give a nod. That's kind of cool. Uh, They used to be called hot doggers. Uh, And if your name is Frank, or maybe Francis, or any derivative of word Frank, you can get a free franc. Uh, which wow. I guess is bad news for, for, for people named Wiener. I guess that's really bad news because <laughs> no free no free stuff for them. So I'm I am i am a little upset about that. Uh, there is a, a little halo of fun news about the Wiener mobile though that may be a missed uh, during Super Bowl weekend out in Las Vegas. Somebody stole the catalytic converter off the bottom of the Wiener mobile. Oh if man. That ain't if that ain't America in a nutshell. I don't know what is. And I also want to give a quick shout out to faithful, loyal listener, Kim Nof Singer of Charlotte, North Carolina, who obviously pays really close attention and sent me a lifetime supply of my favorite candy in the world, Mike and Ike's, the Whoa. original green flavor. Uh, actually, it would be a lifetime supply for most people. For me, it's like a two-week supply <laughs> because, as you know, I'm addicted to it. But uh, fellow listeners, I also I, I really like lobster too just as an (laughs) fyi
1: well it it says a lot it says a lot that everyone's sending stuff to you ken and not a damn thing to me it's probably because i listen to sad songs
0: you Um, (laughs) (laughs) do you you bring people to have with your with your sad songs instead of chewy delicious mike and ike's
1: and mike and ike's are great all right and on that note thanks everyone for listening we appreciate you joining us thank you so much to antonio Cuco. Um, of Sherish Jen folks, so many of us, um, all around the world are flocking to Portugal because it's a fantastic place for um a vacation a visit it's a charming country ken and i can Indeed. both attest to that and i will tell you they all go for the wine everyone's like oh portuguese wine totally true but go get a Sherish gin while you're there it's only available in portugal right now also in spain and a little bit else throughout the eu it's going to be coming to the u.s if you're a big deep pocket distributor and you want an amazing product antonio would love to hear from you so um Um, So much fun with that. We'd like to thank also Kate Hickson of Hickson Design for all the work and support she's done for us. Devin Davis. uh, You can find Devin's music at uh, DevinDavisWebsite.com. And I'm Martin Flaherty. And for Ken Schmidt, thanks so much. And we'll see you, Lakon Bashwood, joining us in the hot seat in a week's time. Thanks. Take care.
0: Bye, everybody.